This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome to episode 85 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, delighted to be joined by actor and musician Max Beasley. That's right, we are heading to Hollywood, a proper bona fide movie star on the podcast and some great TV drama from him over the years as well. We're talking bodies, survivors, mad dogs, suits, homeland, Jamestown, the outsider and much, much more. As a hugely in-demand session musician, we're talking Misha Paris, George Benson, Jamiroquai, Brand New Heavies, Incognito, and many, many more. Plus, he refers to Paul Weller as his very first boss. Now, one of our listeners, Matthew Walsh, aka M. Walshy on Twitter, sums this up perfectly. He said, this should be good. From the Paul Weller movement to a cameo in the On Sunset video, and memories of Max going for it during Tin Soldier on the live VHS. Looking forward to this one already. Well, you and me both, a real joy to speak to Max on the podcast. So many stories and connections of Paul through the solo years that you're going to love. So let's get into it. Max Beasley, thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here, mate. Pleasure to be here. Now, where in the world do we find you right now? I'm guessing stateside, right? Yes. I'm at home, Los Angeles, and um, in the garage. Yesterday was an absolute disaster zone. I'm going to show you this, right? It was, honestly, it was horrific. And then now we can see all tidied. I've got this little work environment here, if I show you this. Normally, I have my vibraphone at the, just over there, or the drum set up. But they're in the studio, because I've, I've been in the studio last week, and um, doing a new High Vibes album, so everything's out of here. But, um, yeah. It's great. It's a nice little area. And LA's nice. It's nice weather. I miss the people in England, though, you know? Yeah, you don't miss the rain, but you miss the people, right? A hundred percent. That looks like somewhere you, nice you can go and escape, you know, when you need to. A bit like Black Barn for Paul Weller. Um, you can just hide out there and get away from things if you need to. The Black Barn Studios, well, I frequented it this summer often, um, which was great. 
both with Paul and also with Omar who's down there recording his stuff yeah I worked with Paul again on some stuff which was absolutely sensational you know wow well we're looking forward to talking about this and we get yeah. into all this we have to go right back to the beginning though so this love of music weren't you like playing drums from the age of four or something mad I think my dad gave me drumsticks when I was three yeah and then we inherited a piano because we weren't rich you know we couldn't afford a piano but we inherited a piano and I think when I was about seven and both my parents my mother was a jazz singer and my dad is still a, he's an actor but he's a jazz drummer he's a terrific player my father said to me you've got to learn piano because more than anything you'll never go for one, one for food if you if you can play piano you'll always be able to sit down somewhere play and you know and I was like even at that age I sort of got it and then so yeah I started that and I was from Burnley you know in South Manchester and then for me I loved it uh, I loved the area growing up and it's a very working class area the suburb of Manchester in South Manchester but the idea of going to a Manchester grammar or a specialist music school of which we had in Manchester was so foreign to us but my parents had the, the foresight to say at 11 he's going to be going to Burnage Grammar which isn't a great option let's get him on the music you know and um, so then I auditioned for Cheatham School of Music and I wasn't good enough on the piano at 11 uh, I mean I was good but I wasn't good enough the kids were great day and beyond by 10 9 but I auditioned as a chorister and the school they they bring you in as a chorister from 11 till 12 and you work within the daily parameters of what the school provide and their education system and so on and so forth but when the voice breaks you have to re-audition I was going to say what, what happens come puberty right yeah yeah so and, and if you're not up to standard with your contemporaries in the class you lose your place at the school which would be heartbreaking you know yeah. so so I pursued percussion and tune percussion and took piano as a second instrument and then thankfully when, when the voice broke I, I got um, the school again which was just a, a godsend man you know very lucky wow and when you talk about percussion I mean there's a lot to it isn't there and I saw a little clip of a video that you did with Gary Barlow when he was doing his little sessions and stuff and it was brilliant because um, the, the amount of things that you're playing there is incredible. so talk me through what's in your repertoire when you talk about percussion well at that place at Cheatham's it was classical percussion so it's an orchestral it's whatever you would play as, an, as a percussionist in the orchestral section which would be either timpani snare drum, cymbals, glockenspiel, xylophone. You learn all these trades. Most importantly, they drill in rudiments, snare drum rudiments, so you can get that nailed. And tune percussion. And at the school, at the time, you know, children that were my age, 13, they were playing Paganini violin concertos. They were playing Messian on the piano. I mean, these they were really, really gifted kids. And I said to the percussion teacher, I feel like we're the sort of laughing stock really at school because we're on the snare drum, we're playing cymbals, but we're not melodically or harmonically challenged as much as these other guys, you know. Why don't we play flute sonatas and, and, and Paganini on the tuned instrument? Why don't we do that? He was like, okay. And um, he gave me a, I remember it was a flute sonata in C and he said, um, let's play on the vibraphone. And so I started. That has now continued for years. I think the, the percussion section there gets lauded all the time, you know, which is great. But as a session musician, if you're a percussionist, people joke about, you play tambourine on that, did your triangle? Well, if you're playing Cuban triangle, it's very difficult. If you're playing Brazilian triangle, you know, so what What you do is you, you learn all aspects of congas, bongos, timbales, handheld instruments, percussion instruments. And then you go into areas so brazil cuba the ivory coast dakar for djembe playing and you spend years really trying to get good 
that most of those elements, if you want to be a session musician, which is what I wanted to do at the time. So, you know, that's what I focused on. And of course, the drumming and the piano. Piano is a percussive instrument. And so it was a perfect marriage for me. And it wasn't until I was about 17 that I went, vibraphone seems like a really natural progression from drums and piano. It's percussive, but it's also harmonic. And so I picked up the four mallets and I started doing voicings like I would on the piano on the instrument. And that was the last sort of two years at Cheatham's before I went down to the Guildhall in London. Now we're talking of London. So while you're in London, am I right in thinking that you were playing with the Jazz Warriors? Was that right? And That's this is, right. That's- this is where our Weller story picks up. And thanks to Mr. Steve White, so drummer Whitey. Tell me the story of how this happens. Yes. So the Jazz Warriors were founded to give black musicians the chances that they weren't really getting in the music industry. That it was really quite bigoted in those days, you know, late 80s, early 90s. 90s and the vibraphone chair was up for grabs. I think Orphy Robinson was a vibes player and he went to do something else. So I didn't really think that I would get asked to play in the band, but they said, come down and, and, and audition. So I said, okay. And Courtney Pine had just left. It was a great player, Steve Williamson, a sax player and a few other chaps. Anyway, they gave me this chart, which was like trying to read fly shit and as an opener on the vibes. And I was like, oh my God. But because of the studying at Cheatham's, I never used to practice. I always used to sight read my lessons, right? And to teachers, it didn't twig on for years. But now they tell the story to the students. They're like, he never practiced, man. And he just would read it, you know. So I got away with it. And I was reading the charts. And um, the dynamic with the band, with those boys, they were very warm with me. Like within about an hour of the rehearsals, they were very warm with me. We were in um, Hackney Road in East London. And then they're helping me with the vibes back into the car, you know. And, and then we had this gig. And I can't remember where the gig was, Queen Elizabeth Hall, maybe, or uh, the Frig. I mean, I can't remember. But after the gig, this guy comes up to me, and I didn't know him as Steve White. It was Steve. And he's like, um, hey, man, do you play keyboards? And I says, yeah. And he said, did you play percussion? And I says, yeah. He said, where are you living? I said, I'm in Catford. It's horrific. He went, can you get to... Um, Solid Bond Studios, I said, I've never heard of it. He said, okay, it's Marble Arch. Friday, I want you to meet someone I'm working with. He's looking for a keyboard player and percussionist. The vibraphone might be interesting because he really likes vibes as well. But it'd be as a pianist. And I went, yeah, okay, who is it? So it's Paul Weller. And he drops it on me like I'd, I'd know. And I had no idea who Paul was. He said, but before Friday, there's a party at the studios on Thursday night. Why don't you come? I said, okay. So I go to Solid Bond, which I loved. I loved that place, man. It was outside. It was rammed with people. A lot of faces that are still around to this day, you know. And then I saw just down the side, outside the kitchen area, this guy walking so enigmatic. And I went, oh, I recognize him. He's he's cool. He had like a nice little tip bowling sort of mod T-shirt on. And he, he just looked mint. And I went, ah, that's... That's Paul. Okay. Now I remember, oh, the star cans. Oh, and then it all dropped in, you know. But I kept quiet because I was shy, like. And then the ne- I've not really told many people this story. It was a brilliant audition. It was so funny. The next day, I got the tube back up to Solid Bond and I walked in. And Paul's dad was there, bless his soul, John, who was just fantastic to me all my life as a kid, you know. I loved John a dead lot. He was a wonderful, wonderful man, you know. Really very fond of him. Just a straight shooter. And he was the governor. And Kenny was in there, the tour manager. And um, John was in his office behind his desk. And he went, just through there, son. So I walked into the main recording area and there's Paul on guitar sat next to the grand piano and in that studio it was a big old main studio there was a little doorway and then the um, control room he said how are you doing I said I'm fine you know and I was such a young kid man and he said 
do you want to play a couple of things? And I was like, yeah, okay. And he started playing That's Entertainment on the acoustic. And I'd not heard it before. I didn't know it. I'm listening to the changes, the chord changes, and I'm going, Mm-mm. and I think I might have just gone think just to see what key it was in. I went, oh. Then I went, just started playing simple with him, you know, and he went, nice. Um, and I might have played something else. Can't remember what it was. Carried on playing. He said, one second. He went out and then he said, he came back and he went, don't see me dad, will you? And I went, yeah, yeah. I walked into the office and John had this big desk, you know, and he looked like this matriarchal king-like figure, you know, and um, (laughs) his exact words was, basically, Paul wants you to do the gig. I went, okay. He said, it's going to be great. We'll give you a monkey a week. I went, okay. He said, we're going to get you in all the gear. I said, okay. He said, we'll do the TVs and all that. It's going to be fantastic. And then the little caveat with the TVs was he said, that'll all be covered with the monkey. And I'm like, but at this age, I'm 18. I'm eating tuna fish and rice in Catford as a student with no money. And I'm going, this is unbelievable, man. So I went back to college on the Monday and I went to the principal who was called Ian Horsborough. And I said, Mr. Horsburgh, I have an opportunity to go out on the road with a band and learn what we're trying to put into principle here in college and have life experience. And I think it would be vital to take that opportunity. If it doesn't work out, can I still have my place here? You know, and he went, absolutely. Go for it. That was it. I think I was 18 and a half at the time. (laughs) That's incredible. My God. I read somewhere that you have a recurring or had a recurring nightmare about all of this at one point. Was that right? No, I used to always forget a couple of tunes on the, um, on the set list. I just could not remember them on the live gigs. That's, that's the only nightmare I can Uh, associate with the job. And I used to get daggers off ball. (laughs) 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 He he, he is everything. Ever changing moves was one of the tracks. I just couldn't remember the chord changes. I just couldn't remember it. But other than that, the experience, obviously, it was my first experience as a session musician. But Paul was very keen to make people feel a part of the band, you know, and the way he looked after us was paramount. It was a sort of gold stamp and start of what I would expect with different bands. And then both he and Steve, actually, Steve was very protective and supportive because he too had been, I think he was younger than me, he was 17 or something, maybe when he joined, I can't remember, but Mm. he was fantastic with me, you know. You mentioned the clobber, so they kitted you out in all the gear as well, did they? Yeah, got all the gear. We got all the gear. We had the bowling shoes, the beautiful, like the strides, everything, Duffer St. George gear. We had loads and loads of stuff. And I I told Paul that this, when I saw him in summer, I said, do you remember that night we went out in London? You had this beautiful white Duffer St. George top with a red little line. I mean, he looked immaculate, you know, and I've got a glass of wine. I've gone, this is amazing. Bosh, <laughs> roll over, ruined that. It was brand new that day, you know, it was horrible. He went, I think I remember, Maxie. So, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I've never but, forgiven you. <laughs> yeah, we had all the clobber. Yeah, we had all the clobber. And this was the Paul Weller movement. So this is Paul Weller solo, his first venture, the, the record deal with the Style Council's finished. They didn't release that final album he's taking a bit of time off and then he's going solo is that right it's that period yeah that's right it was right after the style council so it was his first release and it's brilliant thinking about it now i mean there's so so much history to think of and, and so many nuances to tell but um yeah we were in the studio i think before we went out on the road i think yeah, we must have been because when we played Brixton Academy, we played tracks that we'd recorded in the studio. So the first thing was we got in the studio and 
I remember recording at least two or three tracks with him. Into Tomorrow, I recorded with him and he shoved me in the between the live room and the control room. There was a little booth there, got in on the tambourine and all the bits and pieces in there because it was a quite good sound. And then we recorded Cosmos as well, which was a great track. And we did that in the studio. And then we started to promote, he must have been promoting that album. And then I think we went out live and then went back into the studio. And that's, of course, when we did uh, Wildwood, that album. Yeah, well, let's go through some of those bits. So Into Tomorrow, Paul's Back is his first single, first solo single. You've got Whitey, you've got Dr. Robert from the Blow Monkeys. I understand also it was snowing at Solid Bond, so basically you were just locked in for a few days. Does that ring any bells? Could be true, could yeah. be true. Yeah, Imagine and, that, uh, folks. My God, what an that, amazing comeback no, single, right? Fantastic. I think I couldn't quite remember that was his first one, but that was just steam. I mean, I look back on all of the work now as a songwriter myself and producer, and I go, it's just way ahead of its time. It's just fantastic stuff. And that metamorphosis that he's done throughout his career, I mean, now people, he's lauded, isn't he? People just go, he's, he's the master, you know. But I genuinely feel, and I've worked with some great solo artists and written with some, there's no one tops him for lyrics. He's got a very interesting approach to song structure. He's quite unformulated. He's, I'm always like, Paul, why, why is that fucking 6-4 bar in there? Why have you added half a bar there? And you say, go with it, Maxi. And I'm like, yeah, all right, you know. <laughs> um, but that Into Tomorrow was exciting. It was full of energy, that track. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great track. And then, of course, Cosmos, a different vibe. And you wanted vibraphone on it and the... And the you know, then I learned that he liked Bobby Hutchinson. He liked some of the old American vibes players. And, and so we incorporated that when we went out on the road with the, you know, the roads, Hammond and the, uh, the vibraphone. And I think I had a set of congas as well. I think at some point. Yeah, well, there's this great show that comes out quite soon after that single, actually. I think it was recorded in the April 1991, comes out in the July. It's VHS and Laserdisc, if those things even still exist, I'm not sure. But the Paul Weller movement live, and this is this, I mean, God, I caned this video so much, honestly. It was such an, and even now it's on YouTube bits of it and that. And it's just, I mean, is that God, the Academy? Is that yeah, the Brixton Academy gig. I mean, the, the band is so funky. It sounds so cool. It's basically, yeah, you've got Paul, you've got Steve White on drums, Jack O'Peak, who's now back in the band again on flute and sax. Jack O'Bly, yeah. Oh, brilliant. And Henry Tom on bass, um, Gerard Presencer on flugelhorn and trumpet, Linda Duggan and Zetia Messiah on backing vocals, and then yeah. you and Keys and p- percussion. And, and, man, and I watched a bit of it, obviously, before this, and I was like, you look like you're living your best life. And you obviously were. <laughs> well, yeah, I was. Uh, but I've also seen some clips from that and go, I look like a complete tool. But <laughs> it's, it's all right, because I'm like, well, the plane's all right, so I've got away with it. The plane's okay, you know. But I didn't have- as a man, I didn't have a clue, you know, I didn't have a clue. I used to wind Paul up, I used to say, brother, I'm 18, what are you, 33? I think he's 15 years older than me. I said, wow, so you'll be 55 when I'm 40, that's horrendous. It used to drive him nuts, man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a brilliant gig, you're right, there's that track, which is the, the cover, um, which, I mean, you're giving oh, yeah. it some, oh my God, there's like a little break where you get your own bit and everything on that, it's brilliant. Oh, God. Oh. I love, what I love about that is that he, he had the... Again, the, the instinctive thing to say, I'll have vibraphone on this. I'll have vibes on this. I mean, the jam, the style council, the Paul Wellerman, let's throw vibes in on this and let's do a jazz number in the middle of this mental set that was such a cacophony and plethora of different tracks, you know. And you have the diehard, the interesting thing about Paul's gigs is you have the diehard jam fans, the diehard style council. And then, the, I mean, this, in those days, now, yeah, of course, yeah. it's still specific, but his music so covered so many elements that there's something for everyone in the shows but 
I think of playing uh, her, oh yeah, the Bobby Hutchinson track and the juxtapose between that and then Precious Love, which we used to, I think we used to finish the, the set with that. And it was, that was like great, the audience uh, participation, it was like lunatics. I think it used to kick off on that track, actually. <laughs> certainly at the Barrowlands, which was a brilliant gig for us in Glasgow. It's always been a good gig for Paul. Yes, complete juxtapose, in it, with that musical dynamic? But that's the man, isn't it? He's always putting new things and it's always ever-changing. I mean, it really is ever-changing, you know? Yeah, well, it was lovely to see as well that he was digging back into the jam catalogue, which he hadn't obviously done for, what, nearly 10 years at that point. So you got that entertainment that you mentioned. You got Tales of the Riverbank. You got, And still, I have to be honest, my favourite version of Precious is from that video because I just think him on the guitar on that is just absolutely awesome. But then you've got Long Hot Summer and Piccadilly Trail, My Ever-Changing Moods, Head Start for Happiness. It's, an, it's a great, great gig. And where else did you go then? So were you part of the, the crew for that very first gig at Bing Wars or when did you kind of kick in and, and where did you go? Can you remember? Would Brixton Academy be before we toured or would it have been part? It would have been part way through, part way through. Yeah, because you definitely went to Italy. Yeah, we went to Italy. Uh, we spoke about that a, a few months ago. Rimini, I remember doing Rimini with him. Um, we did a lot of Europe and, and, and we were flying and then we were, we did overnights on trains to Spain. We did a lot of Germany. We toured a lot of Europe, I think. I can't remember where that gig came in place of that. I can't remember a Ding Wars gig with Paul, but maybe, you know, my memory doesn't serve me yeah. well with a lot of things. But um, Did band- you get to go to Japan with the band? No, because I did two years, I think, with Paul. And then what would serve as well is when that Wildwood recording was, because I don't think I was playing live with the band. And he called me and said, do you want to come down and play on the record? And I was like, yeah, sure, man. But I went to Paul after a short amount of time with the band maybe a year and a half and I still have this notion of being a jobbing session musician so I came from a different place from what Paul had that ingrained band nuance in his you know in his psyche that was how he was brought up and for me I was brought up with different types of music different types of gig recording albums with different bands touring with different bands but ultimately what always would happen I'd go in for a recording and then they'd want to keep me for a bit. And and if I enjoyed it, I'd obviously want to do that. And um, I went to uh, him and said, this band, the brand new heavies, they want me to, to record with them. And, uh, you know, is that okay? I think they might want me to go on the road. And he was like, because I felt like I owed that to him because he, mm. he pulled me out of college. You know? It's like your first boss, isn't he? Right? Yeah. yeah, it was my first boss. And, um, and he said, go for it, kid. Go for it. And that was it. And then, you know, then we come full circle 30 years later, which is 25 years later, because I asked him to do something for me about five years ago, which he, which we should talk about later, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, I can't um, wait to get into that. And I, ha- yeah. I can't wait to hear it more importantly at some point. So yeah. Fingers crossed, right? But um, So yeah. yeah, this is all Wildwood. So was that down at the Manor? Were you invited to the Manor in Oxford? Yeah, that was down at the Manor. And I got down there thinking that, you know, great, I'll be all over the album. and But most of it was recorded. And Marco was down there from The Young Disciples playing bass. Steve had laid the drums. I think Mick had come in and done some keyboards. I can't quite remember. Mm. And he said, I've got this track for Nat Nat, for Little Nat, Moon on Your Pajamas, I think it's called. Yep. Just put some, I want you to put some whirly on it. And I was like, okay, cool, man. And it was just great being back in the fold a little bit and just having those times down there. And, and I think he shot videos around that time, which are in the garden areas and the countryside around there. And you can just see how happy everyone is, you know. So that was that. And then I wanted the call for Stanley Road. And I don't think I played on that. I don't think I got anything on that. I saw credits on it the other day. 
Max or I don't know what but I think it was an A. Yeah, it Max, was an a. Max Hayes, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There you go. Although there is a link. I read somewhere that You Do Something to Me was the first song you learned to play on guitar. Is that right? Oh, I tried to learn that, but I couldn't learn it. And so, and this was years later when I was on, on the road with someone else. And the solo artist I was working with, right, was trying to learn guitar. And um, we were always competitive. And he was like, you can't play guitar, can you? I was like, I can't actually. No, we went, okay, cool. So he starts learning and he's a week in and he's like, this is nightmare. And I went, mm. so I went, I went to the guitarist in the band and I went, Gary, do us a favour. Teach us Blackbird, will you? And he went, the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, teach us it, man. I'll, I'll pick it up. He went, it's a bit of a roast. I said, damn, let's go. By a miracle of the heavens, I had it down in about three days. And I, I went back to the, the guy I was working with and I went, kid, you just got to relax with it. And he went, you asshole, I can't believe you've learned that, you know. But that track's, um, you do something to me, it's one of my favourites. And it's amazing because... I don't think Paul was sure about that track at, at one point. He was like, I'm, I don't know. And I think he might have written it for someone else. And I can't quite remember. We had a chat about it. And he said, it's amazing, isn't it? You know, and, and then it comes around and, and, and becomes one of people's favourite tunes, you know. Yeah. Yeah, which is nuts, right? And obviously at that time, I guess you're coming from this, and it's a quick period, really, from you know losing the record deal with Polydor to back on top. I mean, the gigs, you know, Wildwood, Stanley Road, I mean, Stanley Road selling millions of copies. There must have presumably been a, a change in him that you saw as a friend at that time as well, where suddenly that confidence is back in the band. They're playing live, it's it's, yeah, but it's taking off again. To be completely honest, I knew him very well when he was 33 to 35. And by his own admittance, he will say, you know, I was... I was quite quite crazy at that point, and you can hear it in some some of the songs. You can hear some of the some of the bits and pieces, you know, uh, going on. And he was a taskmaster in those days. And you know, if you got things wrong, you would you'd know about it. I think that's because he was a young man, man. He, he you know, he'd been through two completely different nuances as a band leader, and then switched it out again. And who knows what goes on in someone's mind when you you you're reaching that success, and then you kill it, and then you go again success, then you kill it. You know, obviously there are things going on. And then when he was doing Wildwood, I, I loved. I mean, I've always I always loved being around around Paul, and I really love him a lot. I'm very very fond of him, you know. But there was a as a softer edge on Wildwood. And then cut to now, we're just old men, man. That just, <laughs> you know, he's he's so chilled, it's unbelievable. He's such a beautiful, soft-natured fella, you know. Smart, but not like I was when I was a kid. I was a dogmatic lunatic. He's not like that. He's, you know, very, very relaxed. And he just knows what he wants and enjoys what he does, which is a great place to be, isn't it? Somebody said on the podcast the other day, like, uh, memory like an elephant as well, never forgets anything whatsoever. It's like, it all goes in, it all goes in. But, I mean, you mentioned about um, being a session musician. I mean, this is, I mean, talk about bravery and, and reinventing or changing things. This is, I mean, incredible for me that, you know, you're working with some really big names. You're earning decent money as a session musician. And suddenly it seems anyway, overnight, you make the split decision to become an actor and a hugely successful acting career since then as well. But that seems like a massive shift. But you were, once you've made that decision, you were really confident that it would work or you were just kind of you know, like, actually, do you know what? I'm going to give it the best I can in terms of making it work. How did that come about? Yeah, it was overnight. I've been lucky to be imbued from whether it's parents, whether it's environmental, whether it's psychological, I've no idea. But if I put my mind to something, it's going to get done. That's it. And genuinely, I really mean that. If it's like, I, you know, I want to be a great gardener, I'll, I will go and study gardening for a year or I'm going to write a concerto. I will write it. And um, I've had that in me all my life, really. And unfortunately, I think what one calls it perfectionism and 
I struggled with that for years and years and years, up until only probably five years ago, where I realised there is no perfectionism, and you just got to have an att- attain a, some sort of level of of, of goodness, if, if you like. You can never be perfect, so um, you're always be disappointed. So you know, one has to let go of that label. But yeah, it was. I did a live gig with. I was playing drums. It was a mime actually with George Michael in Berlin. It was '94, and then I was back in the studio in Whitfield Street in London recording George Benson's album. And I'd written a track for him and also I was playing vibes with him. And I watched Raging Bull with my dad in Manchester. And I had empathy for the lead character at the end of it, even though he was an animal. Lamotta was an animal, mm. but I had empathy. And I went, Dad, look at that. Look at what the actors, this act's amazing that that Robert De Niro portraying that role has made me feel empathy for him. That's brilliant. What a craft. I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to be an actor. And he went, what? I says, yeah, I'm going to sort of like put the music on hold and go to New York. And he went, okay, kid. He was great. My dad's, um, um, both parents have always been supportive. And I went out there thinking I kind of knew a bit about acting and very, very, it was a baptism of fire very quickly. I knew that I knew nothing. And uh, I learned techniques in New York that served me well. Really, to this day, I still I still employ them, you know, with my coach out there. She's a wonderful woman. Yeah, that was it. I came back, struggled for a year doing auditions, all the session guys, the percussionists, the vice players, the drummers on the gigs I've been doing were like, (laughs) 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 all the work went. And so I really did have to give it. And um, what are you about, 25? 23. Wow. Yeah. So actually, I thought that the other day, it it feels like a lifetime of touring and recording, but it was really only probably four or five years. But I did do an awful lot of recording on so many albums and and quite a lot of touring you know so i mean i must have done japan five times with the heavies but yeah yeah that was it and 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 then um i auditioned for the top the history of tom jones which is a bbc drama i didn't think i'd I'd, I'd be in for any shouts i was a working class kid in in this this drama that was for the BBC and with great luminaries, you know, Brian Blessed and, and Lindsay Duncan, Kathy Burke, John Sessions, Peter Capaldi, some brilliant actors. And um, the director took a chance with me and met in Hussein and he said, this kid's got something that the character Tom has, we're going to work with, let's go. And it was brilliant, terrifying. But it was brilliant, and I was really, really very lucky to get that that break with Samantha Morton, of course, who who was a terrific actress. How long did it take you to feel to find your feet in that world? Because I guess a BBC drama, presumably filmed in the UK and created in the UK, is very different to working in the in the, the Hollywood machine, if that's such a thing. I don't know. But wh- when did you feel more confident that actually you knew what you were doing and you know you could do this? It's funny, isn't it? In stages in life, I mean, it was quite a few years before, certainly, that I went. I've got my techniques, I can employ them and I kind of feel like I know what I'm doing. But I do look back and if something's on, I'll have a look and go, oh, <laughs> oh Jesus, not got a clue, you know. And I, I, I think it's ever changing. I think it's ever, I'm, I'm still learning, you know. I mean, the last four or five years, maybe, I've just learned the biggest thing, which is you cannot do good work unless you're relaxed. You just cannot. So that has come through age experience you know meditation and stuff like that and so i'm always i'm still learning man but i am last sort of 10 years i'd say i'm quite confident i can sort of possibly portray almost anything if i do the prep and 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 that never lose you you know we're talking about perfectionism before the preparation for me is is the joy of the job 
same with albums, same with making music. The preparation my dad always says prevents piss poor performance, the five P's. And, and, and it's true. And if you employ that on every single job, then when you get on the floor or you get in the studio, then you've got room to listen to the musicians or listen to your actors and act accordingly and mould the work, you know. But that's only really genuinely been, you know, the last 10 years. It's funny, with music, I was always a lot more confident in any setting than with the acting, obviously, because it was a new technique. It was a new um, avenue of, of, of creativity. But now they're both sort of on a par, you know, and I feel confident in any situation. And I've been in recently, just the last couple of weeks, with some of the world's greatest session musicians. And I feel confident to be able to go, they're, they're nailing exactly what I want, or actually I'd like something different. And to be able to have the verbiage to say, can we just drop in again on that man, you know, to, to world-class musicians, you know, wow. so... So only recently, I think, really, if I'm honest with you, and there's still room to go, you know, with the learning. I love the fact how you're mixing the movies and TV. And it also feels like, you know, it, you're very vulnerable as an actor, aren't you? Because particularly on a big screen, right? So everybody's watching your performance. They're sat in a cinema. There's nowhere for you to go. It's not like there are any distractions that you can have. And, you know, you've got to put everything into it. But there's some amazing parts that you had. I want to. There's one I wanted to talk to you about particularly, which was one of the really early works from Jed Mercurio. So we know him now from the massive success that is Line of Duty. We saw Bodyguard. In fact, just recently in the UK, Trigger Point has been his latest produced series with Vicky McClure. Obviously a massive, massive talent. There was this TV show called Bodies, which I don't know if you know, it's back on in the UK on iPlayer. So the whole thing is available now on iPlayer, which is incredible. But this was like one of his really early pieces of work, but an amazing show for you to be part of. Unbelievable. I mean, Jed's a friend of mine and obviously a brilliant writer. I've got a few friends. Uh, Danny Brockles is another one who's a terrific writer. Some just some great, great writers. But Jed was clever with that show, and again, that was really the start for me because I think from Tom Jones uh, to 2000, 1970 to 2000, I did numerous, numerous British independent films. Kept like nine, ten, eleven, twelve films. None of them hit. None of them hit at the cinema. Some of them didn't even get a cinematic release. But I'm still learning. I'm doing different characters and, and this is what I wanted to do. And Ray Winstone, actually, who's still a terrific friend of mine, was like, we know you can do all those different things. Just be you for a little bit. Get an audience. And it was very, very clever what he said. And I didn't really listen. I was like, nah, man, I want to be show that I'm a metamorphosis. You know, and from 2002, uh, one to 2003, the films that weren't hitting, it starts affecting you with casting directors and producers. They go... Yeah, he's good, but that, what did that make? It didn't make anything. Let's have a look at this new kid. And it, the new kid's on the block every year, man, every year. So it's it's a very volatile business. And I was in Los Angeles hustling for work. And I think I had, in 2002, 65 auditions. And I didn't get one job out of the 65 auditions. So you mentioned vulnerable. You're vulnerable in the business before you get to the workplace. When you're on the floor, there's no problem. I'm good to go. It's the walking in the rooms and people, and you know, the minute you walk in, people, you can read their body language. They're like, they've already got someone. Just the game, you know. I was in Los Angeles. I was a lost soul, to be honest with you. I was staying in a studio flat that was my manager's. And I was in a classic car place on uh, Santa Monica. And I hear Max. And I turned around and it was Robbie. Robbie Williams. I was forlorn because I was like, oh my, it was, I just needed that. Some, a friend. And I've known Rob since he was... 12 years old, you know, come up to the house and, and what led, things led and, and I ended up staying. He says, you should stay with me, man. Don't stay down there. Stay and live with me. And I stayed, I was living there for a year and a half, two years, you know, and he said, I'm going to go out on the road. Do you know any percussionists joking? And I was like, <laughs> 
there's, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of good players, but I should do it. And he went, of course you should do it, you bellend. He said, come out and um, and then we'll do a little bit on piano as well. I was like, cool, all right. And um, we did the tour and he was very gracious and, and wonderful and it was just brilliant. It was brilliant tour that that live those live gigs were fantastic like the energy we did like free networks we did australia we did we did some fantastic gigs and i came back on a plane from australia and my agent called me and said there's a medical drama and and they want to have a look at you it's this fella jed mercurio he's written the thing cardiac arrest it's quite good i said medical drama i'll fuck that now and she went read the scripts they're very good. And I said, Jane, I lost my mother through medical negligence four years ago. I'm not I'm not ready to do any of that shit. And she was like, just read them. I said, okay. So we're on the plane back from Australia and start reading the first scripts. And I'm like, fucking hell, this is excellent. And I've not read scripts like it before, you know. And I got back and I've not really told anyone this story either. And then I got back into my flat in Hampton Court. And um, I found my agent up and I said, I'm not feeling well. I'm not coming in for the audition. She went, get in a cab. I'm telling you, you're in for chances. They like you for it. And I went, no, I'm not feeling good. I put the phone down. She was angry. And I was in my house. And in my house, I've got these pictures on the wall. I've got a picture in the middle of my mum with red hair, beautiful. Like It's a gorgeous picture of her, you know. And I swear to God, I just went, think. And she went, get in the fucking car. It, It was just a God shot. And I'm not a God guy, but I went, wow. So put my coat on, went into London. Got there. Now, I'd been out of a mix for a few years, but I used to get offered roles just, do you want to do this? And occasionally I'd audition. After sort of the first two years, I'd still have to audition, which is, and I don't mind auditioning. I think it's important because mm. producers don't, can't see what they want to see. So you've got to go, here's what I think is, you know, I think, I think it's right. What do you think? You know, I got in there. There was 10 guys, 10 women, and I'm like, the fucking hell, this is like being in LA again. And I've just had two years of like soul destroying things, you know. So anyway, they call me and Jed's in there. A guy called Gareth Neen, who was the head of drama at the BBC, who I ultimately ended up working for many more times through my career. He, you know, he's terrific and a friend of mine. I went in with this girl, Neve McIntosh, and we start reading and we do the scene and then she shouts at me and I tell her to fuck off and she she gets out of the room, slams the door. It's none of it scripted, but it was, it was and I went, oh, that, that, that's good, that. And then they went, thanks, Max. You can wait. Like, okay. Then all the guys were going in and them walking out. So they're obviously being told, thanks so much. Thanks for coming in today. You can go home now. And then it was down to the wire. Patrick Ballard, who was left for another role, I didn't realise. And we finished and... They brought me in again to read with two other girls, but it wasn't the same as with Neve. And then two days later, I'm in Scots with Raymond Winstone. We always have a chap's dinner at Christmas time. And he's like, you'll be all right, kid. You're going to get a bit of work, all right? And I went, I hope so, right? And it was the casting director, uh, Beverly Keogh. And she said, uh, well, congratulations. They really like you for the role. And I was like, amazing. And I went and did that job and it, is one of the best scripted jobs I think I've ever done. And Jed knows that. I mean, it's just brilliant. So well, even, very- even Jed's described it as the drama that he's most proud of as well, actually. So it's, there's definitely yeah. that connection. It's a great piece of work, isn't it? We should talk about some of the other shows that you've been part of as well. So many of them I absolutely love. Things like Homeland and Suits 
and Mad Dogs. I mean, the chemistry between you and Philip Glenister, John Sim, Mark Warren, Mad Dogs is absolutely brilliant. I mean, clearly, obviously, you're all mates, or at least are from doing that show. The Stephen King out The Outsider, which is, um, I notice is back on Sky again now. They're, they're, they're re-showing that with Jason Bateman is a great show. But I need to understand about the thing that's coming soon, because this sounds, it sounds bloody terrifying, I have to say. So this is a, um, it's an old book by the guy who wrote Day of the Triffids, um, John Wyndham. Um, and you and Keely Hawes, who is just fabulous as well. But this, tell me about this new show that's going to be on Sky. This sounds great. Well, it's a, it's a very quiet countryside village. Keely's the local psychiatrist, and I am the detective chief inspector of the, of the village. This kind of like the priestess, the high priestess and the sheriff of the town. And um, everything's fine. It's a lovely, unassuming village, nice place, normal uh, families. And then one night we have a, a huge surge of power blackout. And all of the inhabitants in that area fall unconscious. But not just the humans, animals, horses, boom, dropping, everything dropping. It becomes serious and we realise there's something very, very, very wrong here. And then the Ministry of Defence get involved and say, we've got to go in because there is something strange. And I'm like, what? And when they're going in, there are serious things start happening. They try to fly helicopters across and some serious things start happening. And basically, within an hour, over the course of dawn, everything comes back to normal. You see the horses coming back. It's very, very, very freaky, actually, to watch. And we cut to six months later. We've, we've no idea what happened, what the deal was. We thought it was a national grid surge. We've no idea. And what comes to light is all women of childbearing age in that area are pregnant. So there are school kids that are pregnant. There are 58-year-old women that, um, that have passed their hormonal nuances. They're pregnant. And then it starts unfolding. And the government get involved with me personally and pull me in. And don't tell me everything, but tell me some things. And I start working with the government with my you know constituency if you like of, of humans and through Keeley's character as the psychiatrist and through my character we sort of align and start to work with the aftermath of what this is uh, and what becomes clear later down the line is all is not what it seems with the children what makes it I mean, David Fard wrote The Night Manager. is a terrific writer. You know, Keeley's a brilliant actress, so that was great. But what makes it really scary is the normalcy of, of the beginning of the show. It's very straight ahead. When the absurd starts to happen and the terrifying starts to happen, it, it's really magnified because it's set up quite, quite genteel and quite lovely, you know. Well, it was one of the ones in Empire magazine this month. They're talking about it being one of the smash hits of the year. And obviously, you never know how a show's going to go down, but this sounds really exciting. I have to say the midwitch cuckoos coming to sky this summer yeah it was great man it's hard work you know it was a long long shoot and six months away from home and you know a very very difficult character because certain things happened to him in the first episode which are life-changing and so it was it wasn't a comedy you know it's yeah. it, it was another another long one and, and and jamestown the three years on that was the same thing you know it's like not just prosthetics but the, the mindset of the man and and uh it's hard, man. And, and, and also when you're away from home, I mean, it's terrific being in the UK, but the kids couldn't come because of COVID and stipulations and this and that. And, and so I didn't see my kids for six months, which was, wow. which was wow. tricky. But I think the show's quality is excellent and the performances are great. It's a very specific piece. You know, it's a genre piece. 
but for that genre, people I'm, I'm hoping will really like it. Now, there's one other thing that you have in common with Paul Weller, which is my understanding from talking to Eddie Pillar the other day. You're both a bit crap on scooters. <laughs> Tell me about what happened on the outsider. How do you know about that? Eddie Pillar, man. How is Eddie? He's good. Bless he was him. good. He was good. He stitched well and right up because Paul's only just passed his scooter license. <laughs> and now that's out in the world. <laughs> oh, he was giving it a go, Eddie, in the early 90s, man. He'd really give it a go with the acid jazz and he put yeah. a couple of my buds out, which was great. And uh, I'm fond of Eddie. Yeah. No, the outsider was, I go, I go, I, I actually went in on, on Ozark, right? Season two. And it was a no. And I was gutted because I really liked the show. But then they pulled me back in for three again for a a terrific role. I thought, I think we're in for chances on this role. It'd be great to work with that creative team. And uh, and he came down to the line and then that was a no. And I was like, oh, man. But then Bateman, I think, said to casting, you know, check him out for for this this role. It's not a huge role, but it's pivotal at the end of the show. And I went in an audition and thankfully got the role for it. And then, but it'd been tough out here for work. So I was very, very grateful for the work, right? So I fly to Atlanta the six days before for a couple of makeup tests, a couple of bits and pieces. On my first night there, I'm walking to a restaurant. Oh, the way I see all these birds, these little thing called birds, these scooter electric, you know, I'm like, sat and I read it. It's like, put your code in, card, bang, you can drive it and drop it off wherever you want. And I went, Oh, what a touch. I'll have a bit of food and I'll, I'll drive that back to the hotel. By the way, on near a freeway and a dual car, you know, lots of traffic, but I'm like, I'll be on the pavement. I'll be all right. I finish the food. I get on it and I'm driving. Ding, dong, dong. It's a little bit dark. And I look down and I go 17 miles per hour, quite quick. Bang. And as I'd looked down, I'd missed the edge of the pavement where there was a, a, an entry into a car park. And you know how they have those bollards in between where cars can go in and out? Like It was like a 10-foot curb. And I just went smack into the curb, bosh, full face headbutt onto the concrete floor. And I swear to God, I've never had a clump like it. It was... And then when I was a kid, I've had a bat here, I've had a cricket bat. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. And I'm on the floor going... Oh, geez. And like three of these Atlantan girls come over and they went, Oh my God, is your face always like that? <laughs> and I was like, What's happened to my face? What's happened? So I get the phone and I'm like, Oh, Jesus. So I managed to get up and I walked to a cop and I say, Listen, man, I need a bit of help. He went, Yes, you do. <laughs> and he got on the he got on the, the horn and he's like, Get the ambulance. The ambulance took me in, CT scan, which I was fine. But I'm I'm back in the hotel room with scars, grazes all over my face. And I'm like, I'm going to lose a job. I'm shooting in five days. This is a nightmare, you know. But I had the arnica. I'm putting ice packs on. I stayed in. And then I went into, I called the makeup lady the night before our test. I said, listen, man, I've had a bit of an accident. There's a couple of marks on the face, but I don't know if we can get away with it or not with makeup. Should we just keep it between me and you? And I got in the next day and she's like, I've had to tell the producers. They want to see. And I'm like, oh, my God. Anyway, thankfully, they went, it's fine, just cover it up, you know, not a problem. And that ended up being brilliant. And I ended up having a beautiful friend in Paddy Considine on that job. Paddy and I had, had known about each other through a mutual friend. We've become lifelong close friends now, you know. And, and it's brilliant because he is a fantastic. You want to hear Paddy's lyrics. He's got a band riding the low. And I heard his lyrics and I was like, what on earth? This is unbelievable, Paddy, you know. And he loves it. He loves it. And the music's great. You know, he's got two albums worth that have already been out and a new album that's coming out. And, and it's brilliant. So we always had a good old chat about, about the music, you know. 
Nice, nice. Well, I need to find a Weller connection with Paddy then, just as an excuse to get him on. Paul likes him. I was speaking about him at Black Barn. He says, oh, yeah, he's good, he's good, he's good. Yeah. Let's talk about the reconnection with you and Paul then. So talk me through your first solo album, The Groove Spectrum is called, but isn't out to the public yet. It's not out in the world yet. Yeah, Tell me about how this reconnection comes and this creation of your first solo LP. So the album was originally Concerto's but with a groove element, like if you imagine John Barry writing songs, but with a massive groove orchestral element. And I think that's one of the reasons why I can't quite find a home for it to to try and get it out. I'm probably going to put it out myself because the songs are great. I I think, you know, I I don't mean that like I'm great. I mean, (laughs) the finished product is great and people did a great job. So the solo artists, but I wrote a ballad song for Sabrina for my daughter. It's quite simple, um, but quite beautiful, I think. And um, I'm like, male voice on this representing the father you know and I'm like oh it's got to be Paul I love Paul's voice and as he's got older there's even newer timbres coming into his voice you can hear slight changes gold leaf changes if you like you know I emailed him out of the blue not spoke to him for years you know and I was like Paul I hope you're well mate listen I've got a tune here for my daughter and I just thought it'd be a nice circle from the tune I play for Nat for your boy if you'd consider singing it. Anyway, if not, no problem. Hi, Maxie. Great to hear from you. Send me the track. So I send him the track and it's it's demoed up and then I send the lyrics. He said, it's great. Very nice melody. Do you mind if I have a go on, on, on some of the lyrics on the bridge and that? I was like, not at all. Man. You're one of my favourite songwriters, you know. And then he came up with a beautiful bit there on the bridge. I think some of the chorus, I can't, I can't quite remember, but it was in very, very uh, uh, part of the process, you know. He said, how do you want to do it? I said, um, are you over in LA at any point? And he's like, yeah, this is what I'm in. I said, I'm in the studio those weeks. So wow. we wow. come and record the vocals. And he's like, yeah, sure, Maxi. And we were at the Village Recorder, right, in Santa Monica, synonymous with Stevie Nicks, Tom Petty, Steely Dan did all their albums. I mean, it's a very famous studio with old Neve Desk SLR, that beautiful sounds in there, right? And we're in the Asia Steely Dan recording studio where they recorded that. And I love that album, you know. And... Paul comes in, we're getting mics up on the specific mics that I wanted him on. And um, he sings and immediately I'm like, fuck it, this is unbelievable. You know, one more. I'm like, it sounds great. And one more maybe to comp. Yeah, one more. There's another one. Amazing again. One more. I'm like, oh, we got it. <laughs> and he's like, no, one more. Do the third take. One more. I'm like, brother, I swear to God, I've got it. He went, mm, it's not, not. And the fourth one, unbelievable like velvet man and um his phrasing you know he changed some phrasing on the bridge and he came up and he, he started here then he came up the top register and he went yeah i think that's it and it was magnificent and um then i went to capital studios because al schmidt rest his soul uh, is one of the greatest mixers that's ever lived i think he's 21 grammys he's done everyone and one year when i was in there with him i said how's the year been who's been your favorite favorite sal thinking of his lifetime and he went well this year you know it's been great to work with dylan diana crawl and gregory porter they're you know very different but and humble man so humble and we lost him last year which is a nightmare because he was going to mix this high vibes album but can't but i said listen this vocal, it's very special to me because it's about my daughter. And, the vo- and he said, who's the singer? He's got a great voice. I said, it's, it's Paul Weller. He said, oh, he's terrific. He said, I'm going to put him through the uh, chamber. And what they have at Capital is they have vaults that are big, 
basement vaults. They have like three of them, I think. Chambers, they call them, but they're basically holes in the floor of the basement. They put all of Sinatra's vocal line through there when they were recording that. And in actual fact, I recorded Frank as well. And what it is, is it's a natural reverb and EQ. Al doesn't use EQs. He uses, it's the mics that he uses on the voice. That's how he gets his sounds. But for the reverb, he'll fire the vocal down into the thing with the speaker and then he'll record what will come out. Well, he did that track with Paul and it is magnificent. It's super, it's just so sweet. And he even says, Paul, we've got to get it out. And I'm like, I know, we will do, brother. We will do, you know. So I was very, very blessed and fortunate for him to do that. <laughs> do you think it will be a 2022 release? We've got to get it out somehow, even if I if I put it out myself. You know, it's got to come out. I think so. And then the High Vibes album will be the, the year after because I'm in the process of doing that at the moment, and which is great as well, but it's not vocal, you know. But on that album, you know, it's Lisa Stansfield, Paul Weller, Fred Durst, Omar, an American singer called Anthony Smith, who's phenomenal. My cousin, John Terrell from Smooth and Terrell, who's a great singer. And actually, Paul's one of his favourite vocalists. And Paul was listening to that, going, who's this kid? And I said, I know he likes you. He said, no, nah, he's got a good voice. And I, I told John and he was buzzing, but he does sound great. And then Robbie did a track for me on there. And they're sort of film score songs, but with bottom end grooves. It's got to be heard. Now, I should mention there's some questions and info from the fans, stuff they want to know. And one of which is about On Sunset. So 2020, in the height of lockdown in the UK, we get this amazing new album from Paul Weller. Um, We get the video to go with that standout single uh, from On Sunset. And Paul Weller News, otherwise known as Dave, says, you made lots of folks smile uh, to see Max do a little old friend's head nod cameo appearance towards the end of the On Sunset official video. So how did that come about? Maxi, I'm in LA. Do you want to do a bit on a video? It'll only be an hour. That was it. And I'll I'm give like, you a monkey. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there was no doubt. He said, come on, it'll be all right. And I'm like pissing about. And I went, yeah, all right. So I get there. I was I was late, actually. It was six o'clock. And the guy's running around with the rep. We're going to lose the light. We're going to lose the light. I said, it's going to be all right, man. Where would you like me? He went over there. Paul's going to drive over. And, and we were just we were just laughing, you know, because he was like, I'm... He was looking at me and I'm like, how are you doing? And um, yeah, it was just great, obviously, to be a part of it with him. You know, it's just just another step in reconnecting and just, you know, embracing what we can together in in, in these short lives that we are. You talk about connections. We mentioned Omar earlier on. Omar's been on the podcast. He was telling us all about his new album, bits of it, collaborating with Paul, recorded at Black Barn Studio. And really excitingly, you were there for some of it. So you got to spend time with Paul in his own studio, in his own environment as well recently. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, um, you know, we went to school together. He's one of my best pals. And uh, Didn't you share the lead in Pirates of the Penzance with Omar at one point, right? Jesus. Yeah, we did, brother. Yeah, we did. <laughs> yeah. He said, I'm down in this, doing the album at Paul's. Paul's helping me some of the tracks. And he's played a couple of tracks. And I went, bang, what's that? That's steaming. The vocals are different than normal. There's a different... I said, what is that? He said, that's one with Paul. I said, utilise that relationship. Uh, you know, I said to Paul as well, you've, he's got to work with you, you know, because Elma's a genius. He's he's very, 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 very talented. And he had some great stuff. But the freshness of Paul's approach to songwriting, mixing with Omar's, made it made it different, made it a newer thing. And I think that's important to always be changing. But I, kept, I went down and played drums on some of Omar's tracks and then percussion. And they're steaming. This album of his is, I think, the best one he's brought out. I mean, it's fantastic. It's mature, real good songwriting, but with great sounds, you know. And then Paul said to me... Maxie, do you want to stay for a couple of days, play some vibes on a few things on my gear? And I was like, yes, I do. And actually, by the end of the first five days with Omar, we'd done what we were meant to do. And Paul, myself, and then 
our other, me and Omar and our third best mate, Jerry Meehan, who's a bass player, who's a phenomenal player and producer and writer. He sat in there because Omar had him playing on stuff. And we all went, so right, and well, we've covered it. And I went, yeah, but it's five o'clock. Paul, Jerry, Omar, let's get in. Let's go. What do you want to do? I said, I don't know. Let's, let's, get, let's get on it. Paul's like, yeah, yeah, good on. Let's get in. So we get in and I'm blowing through ideas. I start coming up with this thing and I'm just eyeballing Paul. He's like, like that. What about that? Um, and he plays a little bridge bit and I go in, I like that, yeah. And then we, we formulate this thing, record it, it's steaming. And that's the magic, isn't it? You know, that's what it's about. And then so after that, then the horns go on, then the strings go on. And it's a great track that Omar hopefully will use on his album, you know. And then Paul said to me, listen, come. have you got any time next week? I said, well, I'm, the filming schedule is like Im- immense and um, very difficult. But I'm going to make a few days, obviously, when when's good. And he said, Thursday, Friday, I went, yeah, I'll be down, brother. So we come down and he's before I go down, he'd send me MP3s of demos. And I'm like, that's steaming. I can hear vibes on that. And, oh, that's brilliant. I think there should be vibes on that. What do you reckon? And be, yeah, yeah, try it out. And um, I went down and we did two days just playing vibes and he's playing guitar as well. And then Jacko came down, which was beautiful, you know, for us to be together again. Jacko's flute, I'm on vibes, Paul's on acoustic and singing. And his new gear, I don't know what, what the plan is for when he's bringing it out or whatever, but it is steaming. There are some, I, I said to him, that's a classic. That's another classic, man. Jesus Christ, you know, brilliant. Wow, he's brilliant. Wow. Well, and this is yeah. post Fat Pop, so we've had Fat Pop, and there's still more. He's still back in the studio working on on new stuff. Oh time, yeah, right? this is different. It's a different nuance again, but the same thing is there. Quality and just you just hear it and go, it's just quality. He's he's just the master. I think he's a brilliant, brilliant songwriter. He's got the benefit of, of also having a phenomenal voice and being a great front man. I mean, he just is. He's an enigma, isn't he? You know, and uh, but what's wonderful mostly about it, more than anything now, is I think I said to him as well, you know, he was getting a cup of tea over at the main house and I walked out of the studio and we sort of met on a path and I went, it's great, this, isn't it? Is that what makes it? I said, just no one's got anything to prove. All we're here for is for the good of the music. We're just trying to make nice music, man. Isn't it great that we're older and we can do that? You know, and he's, yeah, totally. Yeah. Benefit of Black Barn, the same way as the Solid Bond effect that churned out so many great hits for the Style Council. That home studio and you were able to kind of do that after hours, just make this stuff is, is it's really precious to him, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. Very vital, actually. And just a great environment, to be honest with you. Now, look, I've taken up loads of your time. I have a few more questions from the fans. So, Paul Fitzgibbon on Twitter. I saw Max Beasley introduce Paul Weller at the Palladium. He introduced Weller onto the stage doing a Brucey spoof impression. I'd like to know the story behind that. Your dad was an impressionist, wasn't he? So, my dad used to open his act with Bruce. Brilliant. <laughs> Dad's a brilliant impressionist. Jimmy Stewart, Humphrey Bogart, Cagney. I mean, he's just fantastic. In fact, we did a short film with him doing all of it. He's brilliant. So, I used to mimic Bruce on the tour bus and well. He used to laugh his ass off at it. And then someone came up with the idea, I don't know, it was John, Kenny, or Paul, I can't remember, saying, put the syrup on, get the moustache on, get the jacket, bring him on as as Bruce. I mean, the balls I had to do that, I cannot believe that I did it, you know. But it always it always makes him laugh. It makes him when I do any impressions, it gets him giggling. Paul Fitzgibbon, great memory, brother. Jesus. <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh, dear. Uh, Daniel Drake, how influential was Max in getting Paul into Gangstar, the jazzier end of hip-hop ensemble culture? I've heard secondhand that he introduced a lot of that stuff into the mix. Paul introduced me to Gangstar. 
because Paul's ex-wife D sang on one of the albums and it's like one of the really best songs I think D's done. It was fantastic. And I don't know if Marco introduced Paul to Gangstar from The Young Disciples or whether Paul was already on point with that. And he seems to be on point with a lot of these young things. But I think that um, he's the one that, even for my, I, I've written a screenplay and for that film that's set in the 60s, Paul's sending me things like, what about Coltrane on this album? And I'm going, it's a great idea, brother, you know. So he's... He's an aficionado. He's well, well educated on on all aspects of music, and, and he put me into those guys. Actually, I run it. Final question from Mick: um, If asked, would he ever consider going back out on tour with Weller? And if so, which other band members would he like to be involved? Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. I said that. I said that to him. I'm envious. I'm not coming out with him. Man. Jack goes out with him. I think the band he's got right now are terrific. I think the two lads on drums are great, and Craddock. I really like Steve as well. Yeah, I said that to him. I said, you know, when you couple like a year or two or whatever, if you're going out again and you want some vibes and, and keyboards and stuff like that, let me know, man. I'll be there 100%. Love it. Love it. And uh, Max, this has been such a delight. Honestly, there's so many more things I could talk to you about and ask you about. <laughs> Not least the Guy Ritchie film. Actually, we should mention this because I saw the trailer in the cinema the other day. It's out very soon. Guy Ritchie's new movie, Hugh Grant's Sabadi again. You're in that as well, aren't you? Yeah, they asked me to go out and it's fantastic. It was a small part and then guys like, no, oh, you throw him in here. Just we do a bit in it, you know, another learning process, um, much like a jazz album that basically I was an American in it and Pew Grant's constantly airy in it and improvising an American is another, another test. And so, um, your bottle can go, but you, you just got to be relaxed and just try and do good work and be truthful to the moments. But guy was amazing with me on that job. And Statham, I've known for 30 years on and off. He was amazing with me. The boys were fantastic and they gave me loads of space. So it was, it, I was very fortunate to make something out of not very much, if you like. And they let me do that, you know, so that was great. Well, it's a great card. Aubrey Plaza's brilliant as well. I think she's such a talent. I think she's hilarious. She's, she's one of the funniest women I think I've ever met. She's so talented. Her one-liners on, on the film set, I hope, I hope they all make, make the cut because they were absolutely golden. So I know that's out in March in the US. I'm not sure when it's out in the UK, but I'll put the notes in the show notes to, to, with all the details on it. Max, this has been such a blast. I have two final questions before you go. Yeah. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? He might be annoyed at me for saying this, but I, you do something to me, it's just pretty special. I know a load of people say that, but um, if I had to, I mean, uh, yeah, if I had to go somewhere with it, it would be that. And yeah, yeah, it'd be that. And, you know, he wrote that song with me for my daughter and it'd be that because it is beautiful. Final question then. Purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to amazing people like yourself with connections with Paul and stories of Paul. But it's for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it happens, Christ, it has to happen. We're on episode 80 something now. This is getting ridiculous, Paul. Um, if it happens, what should I ask him? Why is it taking so long, brother? <laughs> That's a great question. Also, it's great to reminisce, isn't it? It's also great to make new new memories. And, and that became apparent when we were down there. We were making new stuff happen, man. It was just brilliant, you know. You know what? He'll, he'll do it, man. He'll do it. He'll do it. I'm sure he'll do it. In fact, I, I called him and went, do you know about this? But what's the script? Is it all right for me? Oh, mate, no, I think it's kosher. I think the kid's good. Boom. Yeah. I went, okay, cool. So, you know, I'm sure I'm sure he'll do it an whenever you... Uh, have you asked? you just got to ask. Well, yeah, I do need to just ask. You're right. It's, I'm having too much fun getting there, man. The journey's great. Um, oh, bless you. Well, you've made my Friday night that he knows about it and it's kosher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Totally. Uh, Max, it's been such a blast, man. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time and for having a look at my life, man. As boring or not boring as it may be, I appreciate your time. Max, take care. Have a nice weekend. And thanks once again, man. All right, my brother. Thank you for taking your time. Loads of love. Well, there you go. Max Beasley on the podcast. My thanks once again. And yes, the main man says it's kosher. It's legit. It doesn't get better than that, does it? My thanks once again to Max for joining me on the pod. You can find more details on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com, on all the stuff that we talked about there. If you've enjoyed this episode, and heck, if you've got this far, you must have done, surely. Then please do share it on your social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It all helps to spread the word. And make sure you subscribe as well. Give it a follow wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Echo. Yes, you can ask Alexa to play the Paul Weller Fan Podcast, my friends. And if you do enjoy, leave a five-star review as well. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.